The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Now, uh, if you would, open your scriptures to Exodus 15. And we're going to come to just one of the great celebrations in the Bible. Uh, Moses' song as they sing over God's deliverance in the, at the Red Sea. And uh, this is the first song recorded in Scripture. And so those of you that are musical, Eric and others involved in the music ministry, this is where it all starts, right here. The song of Moses. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to consider how God has given us this great gift of music and of singing. But I think in order to understand this chapter, we kind of have to set it in its theological context to understand uh, just what Exodus is supposed to mean for us today. And then we will understand how Exodus 15, namely the Song of Moses, fits in as well. Exodus and the great physical salvation of Israel from Egypt is an act in history which all believing Christians can, can bank on and say this is an absolute fact, historical fact. But as we've said before many times, it's also somewhat of a spiritual analogy for what God is doing to us and in us. He is redeeming us from slavery to sin. He's bringing us through a journey or pilgrimage on into the promised land. And it just fits so perfectly and it's intended to fit perfectly because this is what God is doing, the exodus that Jesus accomplished. Jesus is our greater than Moses who is leading us ahead. He is the captain of our salvation in the book of Hebrews. He's leading on ahead and he is going to bring us into heaven. Uh, but in order to understand then how Exodus 15, the song of Moses and the celebration on the other side of the Red Sea fits in, then realize, as we talked about this morning, the purpose of our salvation. Why were we saved? Now, it wasn't just for God's glory, for a revelation of God's glory. But it goes more beyond that. Uh, the book of Ephesians says that we were saved to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, that God's glory would be praised by us that we would rejoice over it, that we would be excited and delighted in it. He is a loving God and He wants to include us in His glory. And He wants us to praise Him for it. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, it says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That little word, too, shows the purpose of our salvation, that we should be in heaven and praise him for his glory. It reminds me also of John 17, where Jesus said, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory. Why does he want us to see his glory? So that we would praise him. And why? Because he needs praise He's a needy being and he needs as much praise as he can get. He's scraping together all the praise that, not at all. It's because he's a loving God. And so this is kind of how it works, as John Piper put it so beautifully. God gets the glory, we get the joy. That's how it works. God gets the glory and we get the joy. He wants us to have the joy as long as he gets the glory. And we will be filled with joy as long as he's getting the glory. And so on the other side of the Red Sea, as they stand there and sing, their hearts are swelling with joy, and God's getting all the glory. And I think that's important for us to realize. You know, praise, which begins here on earth, 
is perfected in heaven. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be employed in heaven. And what is our employment going to be? It's going to be praise and worship. Any of you who have read through the book of Revelation, you realize how frequently this theme is struck again and again. Praise is what they do in heaven. They just are praising God all the time. For example, Revelation 7, we've quoted before, but listen again. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There's just a piling up of phrases and descriptions there as it just fills their hearts and they delight in praising God for his glorious grace. That's what they're doing, and that's what we'll be doing in heaven. And I'm looking forward to it. Isn't that going to be special? It's going to be fantastic, not dull at all, as God continues to reveal more and more of his nature. Or listen to this in Revelation 15. And this is fascinating for our purpose here in Exodus 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses. Isn't that interesting? They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. So there they are, and on the other side of salvation, on the other side of all of the great things that God has yet to do in the book of Revelation, they're standing there singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Now, I think that's interesting. Revelation 15, verse 3. The song of Moses we have here in Exodus 15. It's a song of deliverance for salvation. It's a song of praise and glory when all of God's enemies, symbolically, I think, are destroyed there. Now, there's still work to be done, as you well know, on uh, Exodus 16 and 17, on and it goes. But symbolically, that's when it says not one of Pharaoh's uh, soldiers survived. That's a symbol for a yet and future time when there will be no enemies left. The final enemy will be conquered. And then it will be a time of great celebration, a time of delight and worship. That's the song of Moses. But it also says in the book of Revelation, the song of Moses and of the Lamb, as though they were one, as though it was really just one song being sung there. The song of Moses has become the song of the Lamb a song of deliverance, of salvation, of worship and praise. And so we should sing. We have sung today, but we should sing from our hearts. We should worship God because that's what we're created to do. And that's what we're yet to do in the future. I feel the most connected to what it is I was originally created to do and what I was redeemed for when I'm praising God from my heart. And so I know that Eric will be greatly gratified as you continue to sing these hymns and songs and spiritual songs from your heart. And you will be greatly refreshed as well because this is what we were saved for, for the praise of his glorious grace. Now, it's interesting about songs. I think that songs are very memorable, aren't they? So there's a movement these days to uh, have people memorizing scripture by setting them to music. And uh, I think that the choir could probably recite uh, the verses I preached on. 
Philippians 1, 3 through 11, because they sang them last week. Shall I have one of them stand up and say it? They probably couldn't say it, but they might be able to sing it. And it's funny how that is, how we can remember the lyrics to songs, even if we wish we couldn't remember those songs anymore. But praise God, there are some good songs that flood through our minds as well, and we can remember these things. You know, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 31, it mentions another song of Moses, which is Deuteronomy 32. And that's a little bit of a different song, but it's a song of the whole history of Israel, the song of Moses. And he said, I want you to teach this song from generation to generation because it will testify against you. And that's interesting. There he predicts their apostasy and their exile from the promised land. And this even before they enter the promised land. He said, but just learn the song, just pass it on, everybody will know it, and then you'll know I told you ahead of time what you're going to do. So uh, it's a fascinating thing how songs uh, just are burned into our minds. But one of the great moments for song is a time of triumph, victory, celebration. And that's what Exodus 15 is. So listen to it. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but just the celebration part. Uh, we'll get to the complaining part another time. <laughs> that's the rest of the chapter. Yeah, the story doesn't end at Exodus 15. It keeps going on, and that's when they start complaining against God. But this is a good moment here, and this is the time in which they're worshiping God and praising him and celebrating. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in, in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the peoples of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed with her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now, as we look at this magnificent praise, it really breaks into two parts. In verse 1 through 12, we see them looking backward with praise. Looking backward at what God has done with praise. In verse 13 through 18, they're looking forward with faith. Looking backward with praise at what God has done historically. And then looking forward with faith. Let's look at the first part, looking backward with praise. In verse 1 through 12, we have a sense here of uh, to the victor goes the spoils. You know, when you win a, a mighty victory or a battle, uh, you get to divide the plunder. You get to celebrate. There's a note of, of triumph here, a note of victory, of absolute joy. But we get to divide the plunder and the spoils, and that's the sense here. A vicious foe who meant their destruction has been destroyed. There's a sense of righteousness and justice here too, isn't there? Because these uh, chariots meant to slaughter and to destroy the Israelites. And so what ends up happening is God turns their maliciousness against them. And this is the way it always is. In Psalm 9, uh, verse 15 and 16, it says, The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. You see, they deserve this because they were seeking to do this very same thing to the Israelites. They were seeking to wipe them out and to destroy them. And their own viciousness and their own desire for plunder and for destruction uh, in the end is what destroyed them. And so there's a sense of justice here as God does everything well and perfectly. And so it is appropriate to celebrate. You know, a lot of the celebration in the book of Revelation comes after great judgments and wrath is poured out. The Hallelujah Chorus of Handel is taken from Revelation 19, in which at last, finally, the kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his enemies are thrown down, and uh, forever and ever he's going to reign. Well, that's after uh, great judgment has, uh, has come, and Jesus has come back in his second coming glory. And so there's a sense of joy. It says the same thing in Isaiah 9, verse 3 through 6. Celebration totally appropriate after this kind of victory in this kind of battle. It says you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. This is Isaiah 9. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on, and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus Christ, amen, amen. Jesus Christ is our victor. And so we should celebrate, as in the day of Midian's defeat. We should celebrate when dividing the plunder. And that's exactly what they do on the other side of the Red Sea. 
The focus here in this part, in verse 1 through 12, is a celebration of God in his greatness and his power to save. I will sing to the Lord, it says, for he is highly exalted. The focus is on God. As all the great hymns are like that, aren't they? Up in the, uh, the, the worship, um, the choir loft, the, the room up there that they're practicing, they have in big letters the word God. Is it still up there? Okay. Which I don't know if I'd be the one to want to erase it. I mean, but at any rate, they put it up there. The focus is on God. We'll probably have to get another board and use that one from then on. But at any rate, there it is. The focus is on God. And all the great hymns are that way. A mighty fortress is our God. There's a focus on him and on his great power. God is a warrior. Isn't that the picture here? That our God puts on his battle gear and goes off and wins battles. Look at verse 3 through 5. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. And so this is a picture that uh, God's enemies will be destroyed. His wrath can flare up in a moment. So don't make him your enemy. You know, the Lord is a magnificent savior. Oh, but he's a terrifying enemy. So there's a great warning here, isn't there? Don't make God your enemy because this is what will happen to you. The essence of liberal theology is the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, that God has no malicious intent toward anyone, ever. He has no wrath, no anger. He's always a loving father, willing and ready to accept back anyone. Is that the picture we get here? Not at all. The Lord is a warrior. And if you fight against him and you seek to destroy his people, he will destroy you. God's wrath against sinners is greatly downplayed, if existent at all in that kind of theology. And such a watering down is absolutely foreign to the scriptures. It's foreign to heaven. The angels celebrate when God pours out his wrath on a world that deserves it. And they celebrate also when the redeemed make it up to heaven. They rejoice in anything God does because God is almighty and wonderful and powerful. And so the Jews, the Israelites, take great delight in the fact that their enemies have been so thoroughly trounced. There's joy and delight here because God did it. And so, as we've mentioned before, there's a future triumph for us over all of our enemies that plague us. I will not regret one bit when the devil gets thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to be celebrating. I'm going to be delighted to see it. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hallelujah. Romans 16:20, Revelation 20:10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I've been looking forward to this all week. It is time for us to dispense forever with the liberal understanding of the Red Sea crossing. You ready now? We're going to work on this, okay? Because uh, I don't know that we'll ever get a chance to do, do this again, but it's time to understand what they say and how, un, how impossible it is to line it up with Scripture. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. 
Now get these, what image do you get here as you're thinking about this? Deep water sinking to the depths like a stone, right? Water is piled up and covering them over. You get that image now? I mean, I'm not talking about from predispositions. and th I mean just from the words of the Bible. That's what I get. I get deep water sunk to the depths like a stone, the water up like a wall on the left and the right. That's what I get. In verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. Now look at verse 8. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. Verse 10, God's response. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11 and 12, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Now here's my whole approach to, to Exodus 15. We look back with praise at what God has done so that we can look forward with faith at what he has yet to do. You see how it works? And that's what we must do as well. We look backward at what God has already accomplished in space and time and history so that we can trust him for what he has yet to accomplish in space and time and history. If you take the historical events away from us, how can you look ahead with any faith or confidence at your history in space and time? You're a physical being, right? Does it matter to you what happens to your body? Does it matter what happens to history to you? Do the actual events of your life and of the world matter to you? Well, if they matter to you, how much more do they matter to God? And what the liberal commentators always want to do is make this whole thing myth make it poetical. A little thing happened and they kind of blew it out of proportion with some poetical language. I think if you do that, you don't have any faith for the future. It's impossible to look ahead with confidence. Can we really trust God for a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead if we can't look back on Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection from the dead? If he has not been raised from the dead, I mean literally in history, then our faith is worthless and we're all wasting our time here tonight. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstborn among those who sleep. And so we look back at a historical reality. Now, my problem is not so much with the liberal commentators. My problem is with the semi-pseudo-conservative commentators that are trying to be friends with the liberals and start to bring those ideas into their commentaries and work with them. And it really bothers me. Listen to this. This is from a conservative commentator. No one yet has given any convincing extra-biblical hint, much less proof, of any single part of the historical narrative. This is not, of course, to say that the events and persons referred to by Exodus are not historical, only that we have no historical proof of them. Thus, it is, listen to this, it is far better to speak of the narrative of Exodus in history rather than as history. Oh, that's devastating. You accept that, we've got big, big problems. If this isn't history, then what are you basing your faith on? And how can you look forward to the future with faith? This is history, as a matter of fact. Now, let's start how they do. They look at the word Red Sea. Now, it's right in our text here. <clears throat> 
and verse 4. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Now, do you have a little footnote there next to the word Red Sea? Yes, a little letter that brings you down to the bottom of the page. And what does it tell you? Sea of Reeds, Yam Suf. Okay. Let's go with it. Let's work on it for a minute, okay? The Sea of Reeds. Now, what image do you get when you come to a Sea of Reeds? Marshy swamp, right? Isn't that what you end up thinking? Marshy swamp. <clears throat> well, does the word Yam Suf, does it mean Sea of Reeds? Yes, it does. But let's, uh, let's see if we can work on it a bit. It is true that Suf usually means reeds or bulrushes, but it's interesting. The word red, which is translated red, is also translated by the Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation, meaning red, like your sweater or dress in a few of your cases here. I mean literally red. It's interesting here. It says, why, in Isaiah 63:2, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? Same word. Now, that's interesting to me. When you're treading the wine press, your garments get all red with the stain of the grape. And so there is a sense of an ancient commentator, I mean the Greek Septuagint, saying this was the Red Sea. Another commentator, a conservative, said this. <clears throat> Actually, there are no reeds in the Red Sea. Now, what a statement. I, I myself haven't taken a tour of the whole Red Sea, but I would think somewhere you'd find some vegetation growing in the Red Sea. What it is is that there's no marshy swamp like they're looking for. And so therefore it couldn't have been the Red Sea in their way of thinking. The word suf, which is usually translated reed, such as Moses and the bulrushes, all that kind of thing, that's true. It's also translated in Jonah chapter 2. Take a minute and look at Jonah 2 verse 5. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2, you know, what happened to Jonah? Well, he was thrown overboard in a storm. And uh, as he was thrown overboard, what did he do? Well, apparently, from Jonah 2, he sank to the depths like a stone. Does that sound familiar? Okay, he was going down. And God appointed a great fish to swallow him. Was that historical or poetical? Well, talk about that another time. But what do you think I think? Absolutely is historical. But as he's sinking down, it says in Jonah 2.5, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Do you know what the word seaweed? It's suf. Same word. The exact same word. What does that tell me? Oh, well, the commentators are saying, there are no reeds in the Red Sea. Do you think there's any vegetation at the bottom of the Red Sea? Yeah, I think actually they had a very close look at the vegetation at the bottom of the Red Sea as they were traveling through. And so it was very much a sea of reeds, if that's what you want to call it. How about a sea of seaweed as they were traveling through? So don't let the, the footnote that's in every English translation these days, Sea of Reeds, disturb you. Maybe not the King James, is that right? See, you're shaking your head. Okay, well, stay with the King James if you'd like. You'll have other problems, but uh, we'll work on that. That's fine. But uh, praise God, you know, just because it says Yam Suf doesn't mean we have to give up the uh, idea that they sank to the depths like a stone. Now, listen to this. This is uh, from my friend here, R. Allen Cole. Never met him before. Tyndale, InterVarsity Press, IVP. Friend or foe? What do you think? Well, listen to this. The Hebrew Yamsuf is better translated Sea of Reeds or even Papyrus Marsh. It may be a definite place name belonging to one particular spot, or it may be simply the generic term for any shallow sea of water overgrown with reeds, rather, as we might say, mangrove swamp today. 
In the latter sense, an exact identification is impossible. This broad general description would fit many points north of the Gulf of Suez, between the Gulf and the Mediterranean coast, where there is a chain of, now listen to this, shallow marshy lagoons, shallow marshy lagoons, roughly along the line of the present Suez Canal. God blew his strong east wind, says Cole, and dried up one of those shallow marshy lagoons. It gets worse. Amen? Okay. All right. As they're crossing the Red Sea, now listen, okay? This is Exodus 14. Moses stretched out his hand. There is no contradiction between this statement as seen, seen as the cause of the sea drying up and the second statement below that God sent a strong east wind. The action of Moses in stretching out his hand was necessary to show that this ebb, this ebb was no uh, chance accident but an act of God working in might to save his people. You see, God dried up the marsh a little bit so that they could walk across. The east wind um, is the same natural force that he had already used with the locusts, and it appears in Jonah's story. Now they, try, they cross across on 1422 on dry ground. If these were reedy salt marshes, as we have already proven, stop right there, okay, with a soft bottom connected with the main gulf, of which they would be the northerly extension, then a culmination of ebb tide and strong wind could dry them temporarily long enough, now this is my favorite phrase in the whole commentary, long enough for a light arm group to scamper across. A light arm group to scamper across. There were 600,000 men, plus women and children. Now there's no scampering going on there, okay? It was, a, it was a city of two million people that had to cross, and there was a huge army right on their heels. And then it says, the waters being a wall, that's in italics, so he's quoting, he's quoting the scripture, and then it says, this metaphor is no more to be taken literally than when Ezra 9.9 says that God had, has given him a wall, the same word in Israel. It is a poetic metaphor to explain why the Egyptian chariots could not sweep in to the right and to the left and cut Israel off. They had to cross by the same ford directly behind the Israelites. Is that what you get when you read Exodus? Not at all. I get a wall of water on the left and the right, and the water crashed in, and they sank to the depths like a stone. Now, you may all be wondering the same question I am. Let's go with the mangrove swamp for just a moment. How did Pharaoh's whole army die in it? Don't you wonder that? Did they all lie face down in the puddles until they were dead? I have a problem with this. I mean, any strong enough warrior is going to say, I'm drowning in a puddle. It's time for me to sit up. It's an incredible miracle. I think greater miracle than what's written in the text, that he would make an entire army lie down, face down in puddles until they were drowned. It doesn't make any sense at all. Now, why is it important? Well, it's important because they're seeking to take away the historicity of our faith. God owns history. God loves history. God loves the physical bodies that you are in and the things you do with them. He watches over it. It all matters to him. It's part of his tapestry that he's unfolding. And so therefore, these events really happen. They sank to the depths like a stone, and it says that the waters congealed. Look at uh, verse 8 and, uh, yeah, verse 8. It says, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Now that does not line up with a mangrove swamp, does it? Look uh, for a moment over at Job chapter 10. 
I like interesting words. And this word congealed hit my attention. The waters congealed in the heart of the sea. So I said, okay, where is that word used in another place in the Old Testament? And it was found in Job 10, verse 10 and 11. Let's start at verse 9. Job, Job 10, actually verse 8, this is beautiful. Uh, Job 10, verse 8 through 11. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me, said Job? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you now, this is 10.10, Job 10.10, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You know, cheese congeals. It pulls together. It was liquid and then it becomes like solid. And he's saying that's about what happened to me inside my mother's womb. A knitting together of my body. He uses poetical language here, definitely. But this is the exact same word that's used of what happened to the waters in the heart of the sea. They came together and stood firm like a wall. Now, in the end, go back to Exodus 15. When you look at that, you say, you know, I don't have a single good reason to turn away from the text the way it's written, except that some experts somewhere are telling me to. And I'm saying if you turn away from what is historically written here, what are you going to do about the future? How are you going to look ahead with faith? If you don't have the scripture, the way it's written, historically accurate, based on actual events in history, how are you going to look ahead for your historical life based on actual events in history that have yet to unfold? But that's exactly what they do here in this text. They look back with faith at the historical events so that they can turn to the journey that is yet to face them. They haven't reached the promised land yet. There are battles yet to face. They're not finished yet, and neither are you. You're not home yet. We're not at that place we talked about at the beginning of our time today, where we are worshiping God, free of all of our enemies, free of sin, praising God all the time. We're not there yet. And so we still have a journey yet to travel, and we need courage for that journey. We need confidence for that journey. We need to know that God is going to lead us, not just through the Red Sea, but all the way to the Promised Land. And so in verse 13 and following, it says, In your unfailing love, you will lead. Do you see the future tense there? You will lead in your unfailing love. It's yet to come, but we trust in you. We have come to trust in you, God, because of the past things that you've done. We're confident. You will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, you, future tense, will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear, future tense, and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia, the chiefs of Moab, of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. All of it future tense. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you, brought, you bought pass by. You will, future tense, bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Future tense. And so I want you also to approach your faith. I want you to look back at past historical events. And we stand at a greatly advantageous position compared to the Jews on the other side of the Red Sea. And why? Because so much more history has happened for us now. Jesus has come. He was born at the right time in the right place. He lived his life, a sinless and perfect life. He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. 
He's ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit as a gift to his church, and the gospel has been advancing for 2,000 years. And we stand at the end of all of that history and look back. And I'm not going to have any commentator or unbeliever take it from me. It's historical and accurate, and I rejoice in it. And then I turn and face the future, and I say, my journey isn't finished yet. I'm not done yet, but God most certainly will finish in me or perfect in me the work that he began, as we've been talking about in Philippians 1, verse 6. I rejoice in this gospel. I rejoice in its historical accuracy. And I rejoice in this, that the God who acted that day is the same today, and he will be the same tomorrow. And he is a God who keeps his promises. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.